Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Modern Commerce, the world's number one e-commerce podcast. I am your host, Roger Emmer, joined as always by Brant Choate. How's it going? Doug Barnett. Hey. How you guys feeling? Ooh, man, between this Red Bull and that music, I'm fired up. Feeling pretty cool. Woke me up. <laughs> yeah, it did. My, I think my headphones are a little bit loud because that was intense. <laughs> we got some new sound effects. We are a new intro song. I, we said that it might take five weeks, but I think we settled in on after one try. So making decisions. There we go. I think there might be some more we can do with it, like maybe add some stuff later, voiceover. But, you know, I thought, I think it's pretty cool. I like it. We'd love some feedback. Well, it's not just the intro music. We also have um, we have some new cover art, courtesy of um, Mid Journey and Brant Choate. Guys, check that out as well. Do most people know what Mid Journey is, Raj? I don't know. I mean, it probably depends on which circle you run in, but some people have probably heard of Mid Journey or at least the concept of what Mid Journey is. I've only used Midjourney once, Raj, but you use it way more than I do. What is it like? Where is it? How do people use it? How much does it cost? Mm. So for those listeners that don't know, Midjourney is an AI generative art tool, and it allows you to create art pieces um, basically by typing what you want into a search field, so to speak, and it outputs um, an image or multiple images based on what you type into it. So if you've heard people talking about generative AI art, this is kind of what they're talking about. There's, I think, really three big players in the space right now. Uh, Midjourney is one of them. And then there's Stable Diffusion and uh, an accompanying Mac app called Diffusion B. And then there's Dolly. So... These have been out on the on the scene for a little while, but it seems like they're definitely catching some hype waves here. And I think part of that is because they've made some really big strides in the last uh, maybe two or three months. What did you type? What was the prompt? Here's what I typed in to Midjourney. Cyberpunk Neo Tokyo by Juan P. Osoro at night, ray tracing, high detail. Hmm. That's what I typed in. How did you get the artist? I Googled well-known cyberpunk artists. Uh, and he, I found an article that had like the top 20 pieces of art in the cyberpunk style rank. Probably someone's just opinion. And there, he actually has a piece called Neo Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And that was ranked number two. Does this album art, like if people looked at it, would they think he drew this? This one in particular, not really. Um, I think it's part of the way it's cropped. Some of the other ones that I used to get here, you would probably see some type of resemblance, potentially. So I thought, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Doug made me admit last week that I do have an Instagram account, and I'm trying to just learn something new, just because I, I think it's fun. I actually, and I, the more I use this stuff, the more powerful I think it will be in the future. And the more I would recommend people look into this and and try to learn some of it. Um, So I set a goal for myself uh, a couple weeks ago to try to do this every single day for a year. Um, And I think I just posted day 19 today. So 
Pretty awesome. I think that, what do they say? Three weeks is a habit? I don't know. We're getting there. Um, But I wanted to just kind of test this thought out because I was thinking about this over the weekend and I've shown Mid Journey to a few people and it's very, I think it's a little bit difficult to wrap your brain around what's happening. And I think also what happens is people who are interested might jump into these apps and try it out for like 10 minutes. And then they're like, "Mm, that doesn't look like any of the other stuff that I saw other people doing. Um, And I think there's just some actually pretty simple tricks that if you are interested in this and a kind of a mental model that I've been toying around with on how to get some better results. First of all, though, Brent, can you just like give the one minute version of how these AI models are trained just to set like a backdrop on, on how this stuff came to be. Yeah, basically you have um, kind of like a whole body of data and essentially the body of data is like all the images they can get a hold of on the internet. And the kind of underlying models are pretty good at kind of self-identifying attributes of images and then being able to tie those to like different text prompts. And so... If there's enough data, which there is a lot of for images, it can kind of actually make sense of like hundreds or thousands of different variables that are sometimes even not really like explicit things um, and relate them to to words. And so it's a little it's a little bit of a weird technology, honestly, because even as like a programmer, you can't actually go look at any kind of like database or like way that this works or that the machine's even making sense of it. It kind of is this like black box of sorts that learns on its own. So at a, at a very basic level, is it safe to say something like, okay, we have a hundred pictures of an apple and we as humans have told the computers that this is the apple. This is where the apple is in the frame. And then it basically takes that, knowledge and you feed it more images and it's like, oh, that looks like this and that looks like this and it starts to match. And the more data you put in there, the smarter it gets and the better it is at matching when you type in a picture of an apple of outputting that. Is that a simplified way of saying it maybe? Yeah. Like what you're saying is, you know, you need like a, a way to tell the computer like through text, like this is an apple. Yep and tag it over time. What's unique about these models is that they actually can go beyond the tagged data that's explicit. Right. And it figures out its own way to kind of make sense of what the different elements are that make up the the art. Another thing, just if you're new to this stuff, just kind of maybe think of it in a way as if you go to Google Images and you search for a picture, like it's going to return some you know, hundreds or thousands of photos, depending on what it is. So <clears throat> I've been using mid journey and I've, I actually haven't used Dolly, but I've used uh diffusion B and I've used mid journey and I've settled on mid journey for a few reasons. This is a hot take for another time, but uh, mid journey, you actually interface with it inside of the discord app. So they haven't built their own um, UI, so to speak. Um, and I think this is a really great place to start because Discord is like a chat-based thing. And this is one of the most compelling use cases of Discord that I've ever seen because 
I can basically have a place to go type in my prompts. And then if I get stuck or I want help or there's, you know, there's a whole discord server of people online and chatting that I can go, you know, have a community conversation to learn more things. But as I was thinking about this over this weekend, something kind of clicked for me. And maybe this sounds kind of like simpleton here, but when I sit down to do something in mid journey, I'm basically sitting in front of a text box. Like I'm going to type an iMessage or something like that. And the way you get it to, you kick it off is you type the word imagine. So you're, you're telling the AI to imagine this scene that I'm starting to describe. So what kind of clicked for me is if I were to say to you, listener, or you, Doug and, and Brant, kind of to close your eyes. And if I were to say, close your eyes and imagine a tree on a grassy hill at sunset you would make this kind of picture in your brain. And, you know, if you really sat there to try to visualize it, you could get kind of this, this um, scene in your, in your head um, that is a picture of a tree of a grassy hill at sunset. And we were able to basically screenshot your brain and like save that image that you had. Then I asked you the same thing the next day. The two images would probably be pretty similar, but they actually probably wouldn't be completely identical because when you kind of imagine things or you remember things, it's, you know, it's a little bit different each time that you recall that. And so what happens with uh, mid journey is when you type in that prompt, in this case, Neo Tokyo at night ray tracing, it actually spits out four different variations of that image. So I'm kind of thinking about it as it's like, okay, I'm imagining this four separate times. They all kind of look the same generally. Sometimes one of them is like way different and it gives you those results. Um, now to take that a little bit further, if I were to say the same thing and say, Hey, Brant, imagine a tree on a grassy hill at sunset in a painterly style, that image that you've just imagined changes and it looks more like a painting or in the style of Ansel Adams, like how would that image change in your head as more context is given to you around thinking of that image? And that's how this AI stuff works. So when I typed in details like at night, it prompts it to do this at night versus the daytime. I use the word ray tracing, which is a video game technology that like adds shadows and reflections and makes things feel a lot more realistic. And so the way that you modify these prompts will greatly change the output. Now, there's another thing that can change it as well. Midjourney has basically di different algorithms. I think of this as different people. So Brant's version of this is going to look different than Doug's, and Doug's is going to look different than mine, and mine's going to look different than so on and so on. So you could actually type the same thing in and run it through one of their different algorithms and it will look completely different, like completely changes the style of how these images work. What I do is I'll put in that prompt a couple times. I, like I'll actually kick off because it does take a few minutes to generate the images. I'll kick off two or three text prompts and then I'll see what they look like. And I may modify the words I use a little bit as I'm doing it. But when you get those four images, it's kind of at that point becomes 
a exercise in curation and like art style. Like, oh, okay, this is the one I like. And you can tell mid-journey, give me four more that are based off this one. So now you're getting four variants based on this specific image. Um, and there's all kinds of other stuff you can do. Like I'm by no means an expert. There's so many different commands you can do. But I think this is really cool. I mean, you know, I'm not the only one that thinks this, but it has significant potential in the future. I think my opinion is this does not take away from artists. It actually allows them to move much, much faster. And I'm super excited to see how this stuff plays out. It was fun to just kind of in real time put this uh, this theory that we had, like, hey, this could change the way people create. And we created an image, and then Brant kind of added to it as well. And we ended up with brand new cover art. It's going to be a little bit of a cool journal for you too, Raj like what you were thinking about different times of the year or, you know, across they, they didn't get, I'm just looking at Rogers um, Instagram page here and he has one of a teenage mutant Ninja turtle, Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. The problem is he's wearing Raphael's yeah. eyepiece. Yeah. It's not perfect, but it's, I was showing, I've been showing friends like some of these images. They're blown away every single time. They're like, wait, what? this is a, a computer that generates this. They can't believe that this is actually a real thing, that it exists. And then what's also interesting here is the skill of the prompter today is very important. Um, even as you get in and try to use these tools, you know, you have these kind of portrait images that have very good eyes. Eyes are very difficult for a prompter that doesn't know what to type. They'd never come out right. So, it's going to be interesting to see over time how much the tool will improve the art versus the prompter because right now it's the tool's great but the who is writing yeah. the prompts really matters and I think that's one of the debates over time is how much is that going to matter Yeah, it's even getting better now um in the Midjourney Discord if you're a paid subscriber it's like $30 a month so it's not crazy expensive uh, you can go in and they're testing version four of their algorithm and you can kind of go into this little interface and you rate, they just show images and you just rate them. Like, do you think this is good or not? And you can tell, um, particularly even around the eyes, it's getting better. You know, my workaround for that that seems to work really well is I type in eyes from the same source yeah. at the end of the image and that, seems to make them feel a lot more symmetrical and a lot more lifelike where one of the problems with eyes is like one will be cross-eyed and you'll get someone looking like a little bit, <laughs> a little bit off. So, um, super interesting to think about all the different use cases here. Like one of the things that was going through my mind thinking about this was I've had now this, I'm now on my third child who has ran for some type of student body in elementary school. Like, I want to be the student body president or the vice president or on the student council. And you always have to make posters. Mm -hmm. You have to come up with unique ideas mm -hmm. and you have to like make them look good. I'm like, geez, this generative art thing for st student council posters <laughs> would be a game changer for parents. It's like something stupid like that. You could use, there's so many use cases yep. for this. The other thing I would just add, if you're interested in this, um, don't 
look at other people's like end result and be like, and then go try it yourself. And you don't see that sometimes I bet this image has hundreds of variations that I went through, um, over the course of about an hour or so to, to get to the end result and to find something that I liked and that we all liked. And so it is much faster. I think you could land on an image, um, in 10 minutes or less. I have, that's one thing I've noticed. So if, if we were to go commission something like this from an artist, how long would it take for them to make it? I actually have no idea, but it's probably more than an hour. Some of the photorealistic stuff is long, long time. Um, you know what would also be really fun to do? Like take a class of kindergartners and like have them begin to put in like, well, what do you want to make? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let them just, you type it, but they tell you what to put in the prompt yep. and they can begin to edit their art. That would be really entertaining and really fun to see what would what would happen. Yeah, for sure. Brent, what do you think? Is this is this art? How do you think about what's being put out here in the camp of, this is displacing artists. This isn't real art. What What are your thoughts? I think every art discussion I've ever been in is like there's, I don't know. I mean, that's like a philosophy question of like, what is art? Sure. Um, no one has a, a real answer for my my personal opinion, though, is like I think there's some specialists. Like if I was if I spent, you know, 30 years trying to figure out how to command a paintbrush and do water, color, oil, whatever. This would be frustrating. Um, but I think that, you know, those people, if they had the desire to lean into this are more well-equipped to make interesting things. Um, I've seen some artists do that already, but I don't know. I mean, that's just the nature of things changing. Like some people kind of have to adjust more than others and, um, I'm personally excited by it. Like there's, I don't know. I just think like the things that, you know, you're able to create and that we're all able to create now are sort of like these manifestations of things that we have thought, but never been able to express Mm -hmm. in this way. And I think that's cool. So I think what, what is interesting about this though is the nuance in understanding culture or understanding like what makes the piece you're trying to create unique is very important. An example is uh, my cousin is she is actually the the director of the art history museum down at Brigham Young University. I don't know if she can draw or not, but she probably knows tons about art and art history. And I can only imagine if someone like that or with that knowledge like sat down and spent the three weeks that I've spent trying to learn this, they could spit out some amazing results. And I think that's really cool and exciting for me as someone who has felt like I have a creative mind, but I can't draw at all. And I'm not good at graphic design and all that stuff. And so you're able to kind of like have these ideas and manifest them, which is, is, is really cool. I think the speed of iteration is really really cool. Like if you are a talented artist, you could, you could do all kinds of stuff. You know what also on the philosophy side is interesting to think about here is you have all these new companies that are coming out in the AI space. Like, like the search engine is going to get replaced by AI that's built on these data models. 
and this is true for also art and like was the entire history of the world written between 1900 and 2022 because everything else from here on out is AI and how does that change like the way history is written going yeah. forward it's kind of crazy to think about that philosophically um because from if that's true if that if these things really take hold it's going to be really difficult to judge like what was written by human hand versus what was written by computer and what's the truth is a really weird thing to think about um it's like because you're using artist names to come up with styles. Mm-hmm. So what becomes what the computer knows is the actual style of the artist versus some style that some AI art generated of that artist. It's really weird to start thinking about <laughs> philosophically about how we should reckon with this AI stuff. I think it's exciting. That was supposed to be our mini topic to get started. <laughs> That went a little longer. It went a little longer. Maybe we'll cut it down. Maybe we won't. But we're going to get into a little bit of news, listeners, and we're going to have a little bit of a debate or discussion around some of the the news topics. Hey, did you guys know that Elon Musk bought Twitter last week? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, that's weird. (laughs) I know this has been talked to death, listeners. Um, There's a couple of interesting topics, though, that, that that have come up in the last week or so that probably aren't getting the attention. The attention mostly seems to be around, is he going to, are they going to let people who have been deplatformed back on the, on Twitter, are they going to start charging, which they have come out and said that they will. There's two things we wanted to talk about. First is Elon did a poll that said, should we bring back Vine? And Elon also posted, I think this was the morning of the final acquisition, uh, an open message to advertisers. So tons to unpack here. Doug, I'd love to hear your thoughts, particularly on maybe the Vine side or the product side, how this changes. What's your take? Well, there's, a, I think, a ton of interesting paths. It's already become apparent in the last week since um, Elon has taken over that there's a whole bunch of ideation taking place. But what's interesting to me, at least at the start, is they figure out Vine or Twitter blue pricing or whatever else that they decide to do is it's clear that the speed of iteration on the product side is beginning to significantly accelerate, which for, for a, a very active Twitter user is exciting for me. Um, but I'd love to hear, like, Brant, what, like, what does that look like? Like uh, taking a company that's been very slow to make change and then injecting basically NOS and the, the product cycle begins to really start flying. Uh, I mean, I expect behind the scenes, things are breaking. We're probably not, I mean, Twitter is mature enough where I think they have enough sort of barriers for the customer to see that. Um, but I'm sure things are breaking behind the scenes. Um, there's just sort of like a lot of pathways to exchange information, whether it's between people or between the actual kind of parts of the code that was something this big when you start, you know, saying, Hey, no sacred cows. We're just going to run a road right through the middle of this thing. I mean, it's, it's really no different than when you try and do that through like a, the middle of a city, like when you drive a highway right through the middle of a city. Oh, that's interesting. So Hmm. they're, 
they're straight up going to, you know, bulldoze a bunch of homes in that sense and displace people. And it will affect some, some segment of, of people that whether they work there or whether it's users in some way, shape or form. Um, but the hope is that, you know, you replace it with something that benefits more people and allows for, you know, in the case of a road, more people to flow through to where they're trying to go. Do you think people should trust Elon based on owning a rocket company, a car company, a tunnel company, a payments company? Like, does he have the experience necessary to make this thing a winner? It's hard to know what he's like behind the scenes, but he does strike me as someone that's fairly like unemotional about this type of stuff, which I think as a product and engineer person is refreshing. Um, and I think there's a whole bunch to unpack there in that it's clear he doesn't really care what people think about him in terms of if he's making like the really smart takes on everything. He's just going to crank up the iteration speed to 10 and, you know, I think there are penalties that accrue over time with doing something like that. If if he continued to do what he is doing now for a year straight, I think there would be serious churn on top of Twitter, and like rightfully so. And I think even At internally, u- users or employees, both. yeah, both, both, yeah, it 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 would be painful. But I think that from what I've seen, he's really good at understanding let's just say 85% of a problem as fast as anyone I've, I've ever seen. And he's also pretty good at attracting the right people to fill in that remaining 15% and help them make world-class products and things that other people have told him his whole life are not possible. So I think it would be stressful and frustrating to, to work on this. Um, but, probably worth it over the you know if you step back over six 12 months and see what you accomplish what is interesting to me here is uh like the people that i follow i don't follow very many people i've what i would call a very curated list of people and primarily it's centered around my one true love which is basketball but um on the business side the people that i follow they're really smart really deep thinkers i think there's a really interesting audience here for advertisers that exist on Twitter and that they, but they are not monetized at all. And in fact, when we were r- running Vivint on the marketing side, we had a conversation like, should we just delete our Twitter account? Hmm. The only thing it does is cause problems. Like it creates literally no upside for us. It's a place for people to complain. That's it. Yeah. That's all it was. Um, and so it was like a one more place that we could like have negative press for people to complain about. You see it with the airlines a lot. Um, and it's almost like, what is the upside of having this? But if there was a place where real creators were coming onto Twitter, the, the actual audience is so monetizable, not just for Twitter, but for brands as well, if they could create a product that was compelling enough for brands to want to be there. And that's just never been never been the case on Twitter and you know for this audience who we're talking to would be very very exciting if they could figure it out Mm. because I think Twitter is a place that you would want to sell products on every day way more than say TikTok as an example where Mm -hmm. TikTok you've got a much younger crowd it's like the people who are on Twitter primarily are people who have money 
Mm-hmm. They're adults in their 30s and 40s and 50s. They're thinkers. They're tech workers. They're the knowledge economy. It feels like if I were Elon, I'd be like, man, how do we make this a place where brands want to be, that users want to interact with those brands in really interesting and engaging content? We'll see if they can pull it off. Mm-hmm. But that's how I look at the the Twitter user base. Yeah. So just to add some color, the 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 open letter or the message, whatever you want to call it, that Elon posted basically said, "Hey, advertisers, just stay with me for a minute." I think there was a lot of concern around what you know what the dialogue is going to become on Twitter because leading into this, Elon talked a lot about, "Hey, we need a place for free speech and a town hall and all of this." You know, we need a place where people can share their views and not be censored. And as a brand, that's kind of scary um, because, as you've seen with Kanye West, soon as someone starts saying things that the large majority of the population don't agree with, you just don't want your stuff anywhere in that mix at all. I don't actually, so I mostly interact with Twitter through an app called Tweetbot, which uses the Twitter API. And I don't see ads in there. So I don't like, are people advertising? Obviously they are because I think the number was six to $900 million. Like that's their revenue is almost a hundred percent from ads. And so people are advertising, but in addition to that, there's an ad group um, called IPG, the interpublic group. One of the biggest media advertisers there is. They came out yesterday and advised brands to stop advertising on Twitter for at least a week, which is short. But they're throwing caution to 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 ads and saying, "Hey, listen, we should wait and see what's going to happen here um, before we we need to understand more how Elon is going to approach trust and safety." To me, there's signals that he's taking it seriously. This this verification thing could be very interesting. Um, and he's talking about a council of moderators forming that. And so, but there's a lot of hesitation and it could be a really bad thing if they can't figure out how to get the advertiser friendly, if they leave and they roll out something that's going to rely on them to basically operate only on subscriptions you know, is there enough there um, to recoup the value that Elon's paid for the company or that it's going to need to sustain itself long term? I think um, there was a there was a really good thread actually earlier today. Patrick Campbell, he ran a pricing SaaS company to help you figure out your pricing called ProfitWell. And he actually did a pretty in-depth analysis. And I don't know if they've paid any attention to this yet, but I think it's the best set of analysis I've seen so far. His take essentially was that many people are interested in paying for additional features and functionality on top of Twitter more than verification. Mm -hmm. And specifically in the lens of two things. One is if I'm a creator, can I essentially pay to line up with an audience And two, if I'm a business, is there a way that I can connect to the people that I'm trying to to sell to more? And the set of business tooling and and things that go along with that, 
there's actually quite a lot more revenue there where then the the ad revenue becomes supplemental to people paying to be on Hmm. the platform. And I think LinkedIn, um, you know, despite it has some rough edges, has figured out, you know, a path on some of these things better than, than actually most other social networks I've seen where businesses will shell out quite a lot of money for LinkedIn at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually like a lot of pricing levers to pull on across all of their offerings that Twitter has just never even really attempted. And I've mentioned this before, but I, I think it's tough. Like I think at my read on Twitter, just not knowing anything inside there is that Jack had this idea. It turned into something that he didn't even really understand at the early part and it took off. And after he extracted some money for it and bought all the fancy things that he cared about early on in his life, he started to feel some amount of guilt for what this became. And, um, in a way has put a ceiling on what Twitter, you know, became over the, the following like 10 years that he was there. And internally he was actually kind of building out, you know, this team to work on uh, blue sky, I think it was called. It's essentially like open sourcing the protocol and like, I mean, honestly, if it works, like it's a direct competitor to Twitter and it's something that replaces it. And he kind of had this like idealistic vision for how to like heal the the pain, so to speak, that he had caused. And so it's, it's not really surprising to me that, you know, this hasn't been turned into a real business because I don't think deeply he wanted it to be. And I think whether it was implicit or explicit, I don't think a lot of the people inside the company wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And you can argue whether it should be or not, you know, across what your values are, but it's clear there's a whole bunch of opportunities sitting here. Did you guys ever use Vine? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't use it much, but if people didn't, if you haven't used Vine, I mean, the best way to, it's it's the original TikTok, essentially. You could post short videos. They were, was it seven seconds was the limit? Six. Um, and that grew. I pulled some stats online. Um, don't fact check these, but they're probably close enough. They had 30 million users who had created an account. Their peak monthly active users was 600-ish K. In total, there were 300 million videos uploaded and tens of billions of loops is what they called them, but those are views. And... Twitter bought them in 2012. Does that sound right to you guys? And yeah. then shut it down two years later. What Do you remember what happened in that two-year period? Did it just continue to run separately? And what was the press around why they shut it down, if any? Do you guys remember any of that? Yeah, it continued to run fairly independent. I think there was some like enhanced... Uh, I don't know, way it was displayed on Twitter itself and links to it but it seemed pretty separate. And my read was two different things. One was that Twitter itself didn't have like a real legitimate business model. Um, that actually was during the time when I think they very, they first released an ad product. Um, and a company that I was at, we spent a million dollars on an ad and got zero clicks. So it was very broken. Good? Yeah. Real good. <laughs> What's that row as? <laughs> It was very broken, and so it was. It's not really like surprising to like absorb another company and expect to make money off of it when you can't even make money off your core product. But that aside, 
um, video technology, hosting, server costs, all that stuff was way more expensive. And so they were just hemorrhaging cash out to own and operate this thing. Yep. Well, the other thing that is interesting to think about with Vine, really what TikTok got right was the algorithm. Algorithmic feeding of content to an audience is very different than seeing the the vines of your friends, as an example. And vines connected to an algorithm would be incredible. Hmm. Um, so. so, yeah, I mean, we've debated this a ton, but, you know, TikTok obviously has come in and thrown a wrench in the entire content strategy of everyone and every company. Instagram, others are scrambling to catch up and having a, a tough time. Okay, I have a couple of questions here. If Vine comes back, is it a separate app or is it part of Twitter? I I hope it would be part of Twitter. It's tough from like a mobile app perspective. Um, I think Facebook is the, the best uh, case study in how this plays out over time. They've really struggled with like, is Messenger a part of the Facebook app? And like, how do you kind of have all these apps within one app and from a mobile UX standpoint, it's real hard. Mm-hmm. And actually, the the very hardest part of it is notification hierarchy. And so it's not like a very obvious thing on the onset. But if you think about it, the amount of settings you'd have to have inside of Facebook to like really tune down in, like separating out, like getting, you know, friend requests and recommendations to follow people from like messaging, which you want to kind of be like super streamlined. Yep it's too many settings for most people to go monkey with. Mm. And so that was a core reason that they split those two things apart. You know, this actually gets into like a real meta thing in the sense that like, I think I mentioned this before, Apple I think is the the WeChat of our yeah. country. And so they control all of this stuff that, you know, is ultimately gonna decide like, should you put it all in one app? The obvious advantage of Building it in Twitter is you already have tons of users on the platform. I think, though, if you look at um, some of the flellings of Facebook and Instagram, it is really hard to integrate this new format into something something that is already established. And it's probably going to be even harder with Twitter, which is basically text-based. Like, if you look at Twitter over history, they haven't really treated media as a first-class citizen. It's all about the text. And I think that, you know, if you were to basically just think about maybe the easiest way to do this is you would have a different tab that you go into and then you have your little Vine videos inside of Twitter. But one thought experiment I've been thinking about is they have this issue with advertising. Elon wants to basically keep uh, the platform as open as possible to allow people to say whatever they'd like and platform give a platform to people who are underrepresented or or whatever, which brings challenges for advertisers. But there's a diehard group of users that would pay for more features, right? Um, I think that if you compare the user base to any of the other social media platforms, Twitter's pretty small compared to the, the total number of users on the platform. So what if you just allowed that to happen? Twitter stays as it is. You allow people to pay for more stuff. It's still a really powerful 
tool to have in society for all the reasons why Twitter's are good. We've talked a lot about why the Twitter's bad. And then you go with basically all of the learnings of TikTok and you reboot Vine and you're not forced into this box of this other app, right? And there you can be much more selective about the algorithm and you can take a TikTok style approach if you could build up an audience there, which is a big, big if, that could be a more advertiser-friendly platform. Yeah, I think I think what um, what's interesting to see if it ever plays out is like I I do think TikTok crushed in their strategy of basically allowing anybody to come in and gain a reasonably large audience with yep. without um, you know having to pay for it even initially the the thing to be seen is like whether that can still turn into like meaningful ads it still hasn't for whatever reason but um i think if if twitter kind of looked to the to that philosophy like the biggest problem with twitter for me is i mean you can try so hard to like tweet stuff and get like followers and even just whether it's this is like a business lens or personal lens, you're just trying to connect with other people. It's so hard. Yeah. They just, it just is not a great platform for, you know, sort of like this like middle class of users um, to be able to like connect with anybody. And so I think if maybe they use vine to kind of test out a different approach at the algorithm in that sense, um, I do think video is a little more, I don't know, democratic or it, it, it allows for a wider variety of people to participate because good writing is much harder in my opinion, um, than making like interesting video content. So I don't know. I think it could be an interesting testing ground of sorts. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see how that unfolds. We've got one last segment here, listeners. Mm. We're calling this Ask a Developer. Headline here is Shopify acquires Remix to bolster its storefront design tools. I don't know a lot about Remix. I do know a little bit about Next.js React development because that's what, I mean, just being around you is where I know it. Um, Brant, why is this important? And just kind of like, let's dig in a little bit more on the technical side of why this is important and what it could mean um, for brand owners and stores. Yeah, it's... There's, there's been sort of a shift and we're taking advantage of this shift in how websites are built. And the reality is like more and more people are using them on phones. Mobile browsing is continuing to skyrocket, web browsing specifically. And the website experiences are, are still kind of lagging behind. And one underpinning of this is the like core technology that you use to make websites. And so React, um, you know, was kind of a, a major step forward in the ecosystem. And it was it's a Facebook-sponsored open source project. Most of the web apps you use on the internet probably have some form of React on them. It's very widely used. The downside of React has been that it's it requires a lot of processing power on your phone or your computer. So... It was this shift from 
do a lot of processing on a server. That's how it kind of used to happen and send it over once it's processed. So there might, you click on something and there might be like a four or five second load and then it just kind of sends it all to you at once to get a page real quick, but then you watch things spin and load in. You watch like kind of like empty loading states pop in. And so, and that processing is now actually happening in your phone or your computer processor. Next.js and Remix are actually this further evolution in that they kind of allow you to use both of those things in tandem where it makes sense. And so the end result is that for certain parts of my page, I can actually like pre-render them on a server and send it all over at once because it doesn't require like logic. It's like simple to kind of figure out how you'd render it all up front and send it over to the user. But then there's things that you need to load in kind of like as a user interacts with the page. If they click on a certain button, you want like a certain action to happen. And so that processing needs to happen on their phone or their computer. So you can kind of think of Next.js um, and Remix as this way to like put the load onto the right part, whether it's on the user's computer or on the server it's coming from. And the end result is that it's a much faster like responsive experience for the the end consumer. The reason that this news is interesting is Shopify had their own sort of way of going about this problem that they termed hydrogen. And from a architecture standpoint, they made a, a couple of, um, I wouldn't call them missteps, but they just kind of ran into some roadblocks with their approach. And meanwhile, you have Next.js and Remix kind of like taking market share and how to make performant websites. And so it's put the developer community in this weird spot where, you know, Shopify is saying, hey, use our thing. It's going to be the best way to make fast Shopify sites. But all the developers are saying, well, it's not like Mm -hmm. Remix and Mm Next.js are. mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think basically Shopify looked at Remix and Remix probably looked at Shopify and said, hey, Let's uh let's join forces and kind of go up against Next.js and create an alternative that is better than Shopify's hydrogen. And you know, Remix gets to compete a little bit more directly with Next.js with more resources and kind of a, a win-win for both camps. Hmm. So is there is technically one of them better than the other? Like we we build on Next.js, but is that just a preference or is that because it was first? Like, what's your take on the tech here? Yeah, I mean, the, this this is like the subject of many Twitter flame wars, like <laughs> right now today. Um, I I like Next.js's approach. There's some downsides to it. Um, one of the one of the things I think though that we're optimizing for as a startup is just like ease of use and speed of iteration. Yeah, the whole like Vercel ecosystem which includes like next.js the the thing you code with and then it includes like the whole like server architecture so basically i can write code it's all in this framework and then when i want to like kind of push it up to a server i basically press one button and it just deploys across like a, a pretty complicated network that will scale for us really well where i don't have to worry like our server is going to go down if we get too much traffic like, do we have to kind of deal with all of these 
technical problems that, you know, even I had to deal with at like the last startup I was at. So mm-hmm. it's, it's like a pretty big step forward in terms of allowing startups like us to operate on a shoestring budget. Hmm. So as an end user, I guess what this translates to is you can have better experiences on a website that feel more like an app. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you might not... I think it's interesting to peek behind the scenes and even some of the stuff you're talking about is like going over my head a little bit. Um, but what that means for for those of you out here who aren't overly technical, who are listening your web experience is going to get much better and your Shopify store experience is likely to get much better. Is that a good encapsulation? It is. Awesome, guys. Well, it's been another good week. Episode 22 of Modern Commerce is in the books. Listeners, thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next week. See ya. See ya.